You're listening to Two for Tea, a podcast produced in association with Ario Magazine. I'm your host, Iona Italia. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. For early access to episodes, support us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash twofertea. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Freddie de Boer. Freddie is an independent writer. Um, he has a background as a journalist and also in education, which is going to be particularly relevant today. He studied writing assessment, educational measurement and standardized testing for his PhD in English. And he used to work in assessment of student learning. And he's now, you can find his writing now mostly on Substack, I believe, at his Substack, um, his Freddie de Boer, Freddie Um And uh, I, I have invited Freddie here today to talk to him about his 2020 book, The Cult of Smart, How Our Broken Education System Perpetuates Social Injustice. Welcome, Freddie. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Um, so as, um, as I often do when I'm in interviewing someone about their book, I'm going to begin by reading a really short passage from the book. This is uh, quite close to the beginning. And you are talking about politics in the classroom, and you write, I kept running up against the cult-like doctrine of endless positivity my teaching was constrained by the insistent mantra that I always act as though every educational problem could be solved with a little determination. It struck me that this was ideology in its purest form, the unwritten, underlying, pre-political assumptions that constrain our understanding of the world and limit our available choices. Everywhere I turned as a teacher, I seemed to find the same empty talk of excellence without the necessary corollary of failure, innovation, without any sense of what we should be innovating toward, and positive thinking, even while its acolytes accused everyone else of having failed. When I enrolled in grad school, the national educational conversation had settled into something like a consensus, a rare left-right agreement about our schools and their problems, some details aside. Both Democrats and Republicans told some version of the same tired story. Our public schools were sites of endemic failure. That failure was caused by lazy and untalented teachers. Their powerful unions prevented reformers from getting results. And success would come only when we handed control to other institutions, whether charter schools or private schools through voucher programs. Every aspect of this philosophy is wrong but it managed to bridge political divides like no other issue. Um, let's perhaps start there with um, every aspect of this philosophy is wrong. Um, can you enlarge on that? Sure. Um, I think the first place to start is with the idea that, uh, a very common idea that America is uniquely uh, 
poorly performing in education. Uh, again, this is uh, an idea that was, um, it still is to a, a great degree, very, very common. The notion that we have this sort of free-floating, all-encompassing education crisis in the United States, our public schools are a failure, and then we achieve much, much worse than uh, competitive, na competitive nations, peer nations. Uh, and uh, then there's a subsequent sort of ideology uh, attached to sort of the version about why that is. The problem is, is that to begin with, that notion that the, the average American student is performing uh, poorly, particularly poorly, that we have widespread failure in American schools is just not uh, uh, defensible with evidence. So if you actually look at the uh, sort of macro scale picture of American education. We have a median students who do all right. They don't do great. You can certainly argue that the, the how well they perform relative to the price that we pay for education uh, is inefficient, but the median student in America doesn't do that poorly. Our top performing students, so if you depend, you know, however you want to slice it, if you want to take our top 1%, 3%, 5% of our students uh, however you want to slice that, our, our top performing students are competitive with those of any school system in the world. Uh, our, uh, this is a fact that uh, people are often very surprised by, but in things like uh, international chemistry Olympiads or international mathematical competitions, um, those sort of things, um, it's very common for the United States to uh, place in the top five, the top three, or to win. Um, our best performing students, uh, I would very happily put up against the best performing students from any country. What hurts America's metrics is concentrated, truly terrible uh, metrics in a relatively small number of geographical locations. Um, they are mostly but not entirely uh, urban cores. They are mostly but not entirely high Black and Latino areas. So. Uh, until very recently, uh, it's worth saying a plurality of America's struggling students were white, uh, which uh, the rate at which students struggle academically is certainly higher for Black and Latino students. But uh, the the totality, because of the numerical uh, population advantage that white Americans have, until very recently, if you reached into a bag of America's poorly performing students, um, you were more likely to pull out a white student than anything else. And these problems are also found in places like the Ozark Mountains or the, the Louisiana Delta, uh, places where uh, there is concentrated po white poverty. Um, so those poorly performing schools um, where it's not at all uncommon for the number of students performing on state standardized tests up to the uh, typical education, to the typical performance level, the, the sort of state mandated level. It's not at all uncommon for those schools to have less than 20% of students performing at grade level in reading, less than 20% of students performing at grade level in math. Those are the things that really drag us down. And so if you actually look at the broad sweep of the American educational system, um, you're looking at a lot of students who are doing pretty well and a lot of students who are doing very well. And then you have a, a portion of the student body, which is just performing terribly, that, ter that sort of brings everything down. Um, one of the most uh, consistently replicated findings in education research is that if you ask Americans, uh, how is the American educational system doing? Uh, if you ask American parents that question, uh, 
they will say, oh, the American uh, education system is failing. It's doing very badly. You then ask them, how are your children's public schools doing? They'll say, oh, they're performing very well. Uh, so there's this disconnect between the sort of sense of broad failure everywhere and the on the ground experience of parents to sort of look and say, well, my, my student schools seem fine. And again, this is a indication of this uh, highly localized, geographically, racially and economically concentrated um, uh, uh educational failure. So that that's the sort of the, the pre sort of uh, assumption of all of this is that um, uh, is that, you know, the American school system is uniquely poorly performing, which is not true. Um, I would also say uh, that uh, you have to locate this in a historical context. Part of what this narrative typically includes is the notion that um, American schools were good and they stopped being good. There was some sort of a halcyon period where uh, we were doing really well and then all of a sudden we fell off. In fact, that's that's not true. Um, real rigorous cross-country inter, uh, international educational comparisons really only date to about the 1960s. Um, and you can't go much farther back than that uh, in many countries because many countries only started to have uh, formal uh mass education systems, K through 12 education systems, you know, in the 20th century. Um, since those educational uh, uh, comparisons have begun to be made since the, about the mid-1960s, America has always performed poorly. We've, there's never been a period in which we've performed well. And that's true even in our moments of our greatest uh, economic and scientific and military dominance. So I, you know, Different people can disagree about when we were most dominant, but to pick a a, uh, a, a pertinent example, in 1969, when we first put a man on the moon and we were enjoying, uh, we were dealing with problems like Vietnam, we were enjoying uh, this period of incredible scientific foment and, uh, and all these advances. Um, that was the first, 1969 was also the first year that there was uh, what could be considered an internet connection was was established by the Defense Department, for example. Um, the year that that happened, we performed terribly in these international companies. And again, for the same reason, right? Because we had populations of students who uh, <coughs> uh, performed so poorly that they dragged our national averages down. It clearly did not stop us from being a scientific and technological and economic powerhouse. Um, so those are like the, the preliminary, I think, assumption is wrong. And then on top of that, I could talk about the sort of assumptions about why things are bad and how to fix them, which I, I also the contemporary portrait. Yeah, let's let's uh, talk about those assumptions about why things are bad and how to fix them. The book has a um, uh, presents quite a litany of attempts by educational reformers to increase the performance of uh, poorer students um, and to kind of boost people's intellect, I guess, across the board and their absolute failures, given that intellect as um, IQ is, is hereditary, hereditary um, intellect is largely inherited, um, as, as you rightly point out. So talk to us a little bit about, about that. 
Yeah, if anyone is interested in getting my written long form version of this with a, uh, an awful lot, I'm, I'm, I believe it's in the hundreds of citations. Um, you can find if you just uh, search for my name and education doesn't work 2.0. Um, this is a post that I, I wrote before and then I wrote a second version of because it's so important to me. And I'm sure I'll eventually write a third version of um, which basically lays out the case that education has the ability to uh, change students sort of absolute level of learning. And when we artificially restrict students from learning in an extreme way, as happened with the COVID lockdowns and school closures, then we can see that students will perform worse than, than they might have had they uh, gotten that education. So um, in terms of taking a student who doesn't know how to learn uh, how to do the multiplication tables, um, we can consistently take third graders, say, or whenever they teach that now, um, and teach them the multiplication tables, although there will always be students who struggle or fail at that, at that test. However, uh, it, there's another layer of educational success that people assume, which we really have no reason to believe is consistently possible. And that's changing students' relative position within the academic performance spectrum. So what I mean by that is, if you take a group of students and you look at where they fall in various academic performance metrics. And this is true in testing. It's true in GPA. It's true in a lot of ancillary data like uh, suspension rates or uh, attendance issues, things like that. Um, students, to a really remarkable degree, tend to stay in their relative performance band over the course of life. Uh, this We're talking about big groups of people, and it's social science. So, of course, there's always exceptions, and there are students who outperform their previous position and students who fall back down from their previous position. But at scale, most students, most kids stay really remarkably static in that performance distribution. The kids who are identified as the smart kids early on, and by early on, I mean prior to kindergarten, uh, tend to stay as the kids who will succeed academically. And the kids who are identified as maybe problem students, students who struggle are very likely to continue to struggle. And these uh, patterns are seen into college. Okay, so for the, the, the entirety of these people, these students, uh, academic lives. And we look in that in a number of ways. Um, there are a number of studies that simply look at how static student performance is. They look at correlations between present and past performance. They look at how well uh, a student's past performance predicts student future performance. So for example, uh, you, there are the sort of micro, so you can look at how well kindergarten predicts, predicts third grade. There's also uh, things that look at how well kindergarten uh, predicts uh, college performance. And in fact, there are strong correlations throughout life. Um, to pick like a one factoid um, uh, that I've often identified, um, third grade reading group. So in third grade, uh, most uh, conventional public schools will sort students into a uh, typically a three or four group uh, reading group uh, sort of division uh, in order to better facilitate uh, who should be learning with whom. Um, typically, this is only three groups. So you have like low, medium and high. So your predictor variable is a very coarsely gradated. And yet... Uh, the third grade reading group 
is a strong predictor of how well students will perform in high school and whether they'll attend college. So you're talking about, for example, looking at nine-year-olds, looking at what reading group they're in as nine-year-olds, and, and you can make accurate predictions about their performance when they're 18-year-olds. Um, and there's lots of research uh, of this kind. There's also a, a real paucity of research that demonstrates uh, anything that works to move these metrics, to change these relative positions. Um, there's all manner of things that are constantly identified as potential uh, routes through which we could change students' relative performance, through which we could take the bottom performing kids and make them like the top performing kids that have failed. So a really good example of one that was for a long time was touted uh, was uh, and still is uh, uh, class size. So the notion that if we were to shrink class sizes, we would be able to uh, more reliably move students from the bottom up to the top of the performance distribution. Um, but this, in fact, was based on uh, a couple of key studies that uh, had some serious uh, methodological flaws. There was a major study in Tennessee that was done, um, but there was problems with its randomization uh, method, it turned out, on, on further review. There were problems with uh, attrition, so something like uh, half, almost half of the boys in, this, in this, uh, the study's population dropped out, uh, uh, and so that data was not available to be analyzed. Also, Tennessee is an unusually low-performing school system. Uh, and so it's hard to know how well that would have generalized anyway. Um, and more modern attempts to, de to determine a class size effect have consistently had uh, negative results. We just, we don't see the uh, outcome that people thought they would see. Another good example is pre-K. So the uh, giving students access to programs like Head Start that give them academic uh, opportunities before uh, kindergarten course, this is important uh, because pre-K is not something that is universally funded like K through 12 schooling is. Um, for a long time, uh, particularly starting in the 1960s, there were beliefs that these programs were game changers, that they had dramatic results, uh, and that they could you know, deeply alter these sort of relative position uh, metrics. As time has gone, gone on, and as the decades have gone on, the uh, a uh, number of studies that have been positive have shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. Um, problems with major early studies have been identified again and again. And the newer studies have found more and more consistently um, just no impact from pre-K whatsoever uh, in, uh, uh, in long-term outcomes. So generally speaking, kids who attend pre-K will have some uh, degree of advantage in the first year or two after pre-K, but these will, will fade out consistently. Another big uh, thing that's often been identified as a potential way to change educational outcomes is uh, technology, access to educational technology. This is a very big business in, in the United States. Um, notoriously, the Los Angeles public school system, which had uh, decaying, dilapidated school, uh, schools that were falling down around the educators' head. They will. They still spent 1.2 billion dollars on iPads uh, for uh, for their students. Uh, there's been no evidence that that has had moved the needle at all for Los Angeles public schools. Uh, there's research, for example, that finds that um, the presence of a personal computer 
in a, a student's home, which many people once thought would be the key to unlocking uh, kids' uh, educational creativity makes no difference at all. And so you've got this static level of, of how students perform throughout the life cycle. And you have just dozens and dozens and dozens of high-powered, high-quality educational studies that attempt to show that a particular outcome might make a difference and that then show that it makes no difference. And so from my perspective, um, the notion that uh, the problem with problem schools is controllable on the school side seems very unlikely given uh, the deeper uh, issues that are underlying a lot of these these schools and uh, the greater problems that uh, sort of beset our whole socioeconomic system. Um, the idea that these things are can just be controlled from the school side when we have so much data demonstrating that very little we do can change students' relative performance in the performance band. Um, I think that to pin that on schools or on teachers is to put blame in the wrong place. Yeah, you have a really nice analogy about that in the book. You say, um, I'm going to read this, um, a child's brain is not a widget. The basic analogy of treating schools like any other competitive enterprise in a market system is flawed. Teachers and administrators simply do not control student outcomes in the way that a factory manager controls the widgets that come out of his factory. Imagine saying to someone, how well your widget performs will determine whether you will be allowed to keep your job and how much you will be paid. By the way, you will not get to choose the raw materials for your widget. Your widget's basic construction early design will be controlled entirely by someone else. You will only have control over your widget for six hours out of the day, after which someone else may treat it roughly. And the conditions that you do not control will be vastly different from one widget to the next. How could anyone work under those conditions or see such a situation as a healthy environment in which to work? Um, I thought that was an excellent analogy for something that has also always troubled me, that we um, hold teachers responsible for the performance of their students. And you obviously can't directly control the performance of your students you can try to put the best opportunities for learning in place for them, but how good students are at learning and how motivated they are to learn is dependent on a wide range of other factors, many of which are genetic. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that this is, um, this comes, this sort of change in ideology comes from several different directions at once. I think, um, a lot of it comes from a sort of reformer zeal, uh, which can have both a liberal and conservative bent, but the sort of sense that his kids are suffering so much, which is true, many of them are, um, and the stakes are so high, which is true, the stakes are high, um, that uh, the status quo can't continue. So there must be a solution, right? It's the classic uh, example of saying, well, we, we have to do something. This is something, therefore, this is the thing that we must do. I also think that there's been a strange inversion of the sort of axis of responsibility on which grades are thought to uh, sort of operate in the sense by, by which I mean, there was a, a long period in American life where if you came home to your parents with a bad report card, 
that was seen as a referendum on you as the student, right? And the sort of classic sort of portrayal of a student getting in trouble because they had poor grades. At some point, um, the uh, this flipped to where uh, many parents now, particularly uh, in my experience, uh, more upper class uh, and involved parents, uh, now see a poor report card as an indication that the teacher has failed. Um, and I think this has something to do with um, the same sort of ideology or underlying ideology of the helicopter parent uh, and the parent who wants to control everything for their child and who doesn't want to admit to the possibility of failure. Um, and, uh, you know, the, I just, I personally think to myself, just anecdotally, um, I've always been operating with a certain level of underlying talent and drive in school. Some things I was good at and some things I was worse at. Certainly there were teachers who I think uh, on the margins were better able to capture my attention and perhaps wring better work out of me. But I also know that there were classes I tried harder at, at and classes I tried less hard at. And that had everything to do with my eventual performance, both in terms of grades and test scores, but also just in terms of sort of absorbing the, the, the material. And uh, yet there's, there's just, you know, it's, again, there is a refusal to accept the possibility that there is no policy lever that we might push to fix this problem, right? So to use another uh, cliche or a well-worn metaphor, it's the man with a, a hammer who sees nothing but nails, right? Which is uh, people looked at this situation, they uh, were convinced that the lack of educational performances in these communities were perpetuating a socioeconomic inequality. And they said, well, there's got to be a, a way to change this, a policy lever we can push. The question is, is like, what policy lever can you really push in this scenario? One of the things that's interesting is that um, parenting is very uh, rarely interrogated as a potential cause of educational problems in uh, in the macro scale. Now, it happens that I think the evidence suggests that parenting, like parenting techniques or parenting style, probably does not play a great role. But it's interesting that people don't say, oh, these terrible parents, they're so lazy, they're so incompetent, they're not, they're not raising their children right, where they say that with teachers. Why do, does that never come up? That doesn't come up because we don't have a policy lever as a society through which we would assign students to a new set of parents. We don't take kids away because uh, they're failing algebra, right? And so uh, you, you can't interrogate uh, the parents. We don't see any way to do that. We won't interrogate uh, broader socioeconomic conditions that, uh, if nothing else, are the, the actual sort of social problem that we're most interested in. Uh, so all the, the attention falls on teachers. Mm. You know, what the most powerful parts of your uh, book for me are the parts in which you are talking about um, the way in which, uh, as you put it, um, the, the obsession with academic success has become, mm. you say, so totalizing, so ingrained, so deeply baked into the cake of our nat national conception of success 
And actually, I, I mean, you talk about America, but I, I don't think any of this, a lot of, a lot of this stuff is not specific to America. Mm. Um, mm. So deeply baked into the cake of our national conception of success that we use academic sh- performance as shorthand for a person's overall human value. Um, so I definitely agree with that. And I also agree with your strongly and frequently stated case in the book that we on the left, we need to acknowledge and even embrace the fact that people are born with different levels of intelligence, drive, talent, etc. And that we shouldn't be punishing people who just haven't inherited, who just haven't inherited the same level of intelligence or the same level of conscientiousness um, as other people. Um, And we should be creating conditions in which everyone can flourish. But where I feel that I differ from you or where we seem to have different understandings is in how much that is tied up with the concept of meritocracy or equal opportunities. So for me, um, I think I have a, a, a few objections which are probably all somewhat tied together. Um, one is that there is good reason why we, why we value intelligence so highly because we are faced as a society, as a world, as a species with certain intractable and difficult problems that will take a great deal of intelligence to solve, um, like anthropogenic climate change or warfare or securing democracy or tackling authoritarian regimes and theocracies, um, which are regimes in which, you know, um, superstition or um, cult leadership has taken over from critical thinking, logic, um, and so, you know, in some ways, I, I think we don't fetishize intelligence enough. Otherwise, Donald Trump would never have been able to be president, for example. Um, but I also, I also think that, um, meritocracy is about allowing people to, um, do the things that they want to do and not preventing them for reasons that are not intrinsic to that thing. So um, in a meritocracy, the person who is um, the best surgeon will be the one who gets the job in a surgery and will be doing the surgery. Um, and that will be, it won't be the person who is the wealthiest or who happens to be male or happens to be Brahmin caste or whatever it might be. But it will be based on that person's aptitude for that role. And that for me is is um, what meritocracy or equal opportunities are about. Um, it's about allowing uh, an emergent kind of sorting of people into the places where, for which their aptitudes and talents are most suited, um, rather than you seem to portray it as more of a kind of um, a way of morally judging people. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um... I think that, uh, so I think there's a couple things to say. I think the first thing to say is that, um, I'm not opposed to the idea that the best surgeon should become the surgeon. I am opposed to the, uh, assumption that the best surgeon, uh, becomes the best surgeon for reasons that are under that surgeon's control. 
Uh, and I am specifically against that idea because it leads to, yes, the moral case of, of meritocracy. I'm certainly not against a world where the people who run nuclear power plants are the people who are the best uh, equipped to run nuclear power plants. But what I, I want everyone to understand is that coming to uh, the, the ability to run a nuclear power plant, coming to the ability to be a surgeon, um, is always situated in such a vast nexus of things that we can't control that the idea that that somehow nominates someone as being a superior human being and thus, uh, you know, more uh, uh, deserving of the basic material necessities of life um, can't be justified uh, if we have any understanding of the multivariate processes that contribute to success. So again, as you said, you and I both believe uh, that uh, intelligence has a heritable component, that our genomes influence our uh, academic and intellectual potential. And obviously, none of us chooses our genomes. It's something that is implanted in us in utero. Um, and so uh, the old, hoary, conservative ideal, which I think is still very much alive, in uh, at least in American culture, that of the self-made man and the person who... Uh, is able to uh, sort of carve their destiny out of rock um, is just not congruent with the facts. And I think that um, that's true in all manner of ways. I think that all kinds of contingent um, uh, questions uh, influence how successful we are. Um, but I think that uh, behavioral genetics are one of the strongest forms of that argument, that we simply can't say that the surgeon uh, is someone who just wanted it more, was more dedicated, uh, is a, a higher character human being than the person who doesn't have the skills to be a surgeon. And I think you can believe that without undermining the idea that the best surgeon should be performing the surgeries. I, you know, I, I would always stress to people that um, the uh, value, the economic and social value of various skills and abilities is always historically contingent. So you might have an example of a guy who is a big, strong guy, maybe lacks the coordination to be a professional athlete, but is an unusually large and physically powerful guy with a lot of endurance, um, who uh, is blessed to be able to have these physical abilities that most people don't have. And maybe, uh, several thousand years ago, he is the chief of his village because of his size and his, his ability to uh, inflict violence in, in combat and his ability to defeat any rival to his position. Uh, and because his ability to do manual labor is so prized in a world in which manual labor is very uh, valuable. Now, that same person with the exact same genetic makeup can find himself uh, in a world where his physical skills are economically useless to him. Maybe he can be a bouncer or something. Um, but the fact that he is able to perform a lot of manual labor um, can get him a lot of jobs making minimum wage, right? What was once performed by uh, big strapping men like him in earlier societies for which he would have been rewarded is now performed by a forklift, right? Um, and so that's like a, a good example of just the contingency of uh, gen of sort of our genetic gifts. Uh, we can be very certain that there were people who were absolute geniuses 
people who would have been the great minds of their age, but who never had the opportunity to show it off because they spent their whole lives as illiterate serfs in feudal systems, right? They were unlucky enough to be born uh, in a social system that did not have the uh, universal education component that would have discovered their genius and captured it. And so that is the that is the element of meritocracy that is most interesting to me is that uh, I want people to consider the possibility that uh, their gifts are things that um, wouldn't wouldn't be valued hundreds of years ago, may not be valued hundreds of years from now, and that if you are one of society's winners who happens to have one of these sets of skills, uh, you will find yourself. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, at some point in history, if you move around the human timeline in a place where your skills are not valuable. And, and we can see this very directly with, for example, um, blue collar, but highly skilled uh, workers in American industry in, uh, let's say, 1970, who worked in factories and who had highly sought after abilities uh, for which they were able to earn um, a living wage and enough to own their own home and a car and have a family, et cetera. Um, and then the macroeconomic situation changed. Those jobs were automated out from under them. And all of a sudden, right, that ability was no longer prized. And that's what I think we have to remain alive to. We have to re remain alive to the fact that um, all of our strengths and gifts operate in a particularly contingent historical moment. And if we were in a different historical moment, we might not be rewarded as much, which should inform our thinking about who, what is deserved. Mm. Oh, I have several uh, several questions, I guess, remarks. I'll, I'll start here, which is I'm completely with you on the idea of dessert because um, I, well, I'm a radical non-believer in free will. So, you know, I don't think we, and uh, you know, I don't think anything about us is in some way chosen or deserved. Um, we still obviously have to incarcerate some people for the safety of society and we have to um, you know, do certain things to make sure that um, society functions optionally, optionally. But I, I don't really believe in a concept of uh, fundamentally. I don't believe in a concept of desert um, when it comes to individuals. And I do really believe strongly in a um, the existence of a welfare state that allows us to prevent as many people as possible from falling into suffering and misery. We won't be able to catch everybody, um, but to try to um, allow as many people as possible to have a reasonably decent life and be flourishing, even though there won't be equality, some people will be flourishing more than others. Nevertheless, I want to see a kind of baseline. So I, un I understand this kind of, um, um, on an individual level, it's, it's not good that we are valuing people, some people higher than others because of their intelligence. But I still think that on a sort of species level, it's completely understandable that we prize intelligence. And I'm not so certain that we prize it above every other quality because, um, um, you know, our highest earners are often people like actors and singers, celebrities um, who are athletes. Um, none of whom are prized for or rewarded for their intelligence. Um, and on the other hand, we are also facing many problems that we need intelligence to solve. And even though we might not be able to 
change someone's relative, an individual's relative level of intelligence, we can collect, it seems like the Flynn effect suggests that we can collectively up our, our entire level of intelligence. I mean, if I give a, I'll give an example from, um, I play chess, for example, and I'm, I'm always going to be a worse chess player than most. Um, it's, and that's reflected in my chess. I only have an ELO of, um, 1100, you know, Magnus Carlsen's ELO is nearly 3000 and I'm never going to get anywhere near that. But at the same time, I'm a better chess player than someone with an equivalent ELO would have been 20 or 30 years ago because the ELO is calculated on a relative basis. And that's thanks to computer engines that allow people to analyze games, theory people have developed as a result, etc. And um, so people are playing chess better than they were 20 years ago, significantly better. And there's nothing riding on chess, of course. It doesn't matter whether you play chess well or badly. It's very low stakes. But the same principle could apply to things that are crucially important, uh, tackling you know, the challenges that are facing us as, as a species and also helping everyone to, to creating greater flourishing for everyone. So I, you know, I think that I agree with just about everything you just said. Um, I would uh, frame it a little differently. Um, the first thing that I want to say is I think it's interesting that you point out about chess and, it, and its value. Um, and I think this connects to my point about the highly sort of historically contingent nature of what is considered valuable by society, because uh, unless I'm, uh, I've, I've missed something, I think even Magnus Carlsen uh, can no longer compete with the most powerful chess-playing artificial intelligence system. Oh, yeah. It's, it's been the case since, um, I think, the 80s that humans can't, yeah. can't beat right. chess computers. Right. And so, and this is a thing that I, I try to point out to people, um, I think it's it's common for people, particularly who are academically inclined, to assume that highly G-loaded skills are always going to be the sort of socially and economically valuable one. But I think that you can imagine a world looking at like the chess example, right? The skill of being a chess player is still considered high status. And I'm sure that the top players still make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But the the task of performing well at chess has is we would farm out to computers if the aliens came and said you have to beat us in chess we'd make our ai do it and i think that we were seeing at the very beginnings of for example the constant invocation to learn to code right now computer programming skills are very valuable and they likely will be for you know well after my life and yet, even with something like ChatGPT, which is not specifically supposed to be a code creation engine, many uh, computer scientists and programmers have pointed out how adept it is at producing code right now. And so there's a chance that the skills that are the most G-loaded are the, end up being the ones that are the most likely to be um, susceptible to automation. Precisely because computers are always going to be able to do the raw calculation better than we are. And so you can imagine a world in which, for example, the skills of being highly personable to other human beings, of being um, empathetic, of 
being a good uh, uh, communicator, communicator and conversation partner, that those would become more valuable in the future as G-loaded skills get fo- uh, sort of fobbed off onto AI more and more. But I, I want to make an important, important point here, which is um, I think there's a, a, a misconception about what a radical left future looks like. And I think that existence, uh, that the, the misconception exists mostly among radical leftists, which is um, an over uh, emphasis on an exaggeration of the degree of equality that happens in our, you know, egalitarian future. So what I mean by that is that even in the egalitarian future of my dreams, the the wild lefty future where we have a vastly more uh, equitable social and economic system, there's still always going to be a great deal of inequality between individuals because inequality is inherent to difference. So Marxism is very often misunderstood as an argument in favor of total human equality or total economic equality. In fact, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels both independently argued that uh, equality is a uh, nonsensical political goal because they uh, uh, understood that any human difference between two people, right? One person has brown hair and one has blonde. One person likes pepperoni on uh, their pizza and one likes mushrooms. That any, uh, any difference between people can be expressed as an inequality. And in a society that has vastly greater socioeconomic and uh, uh, socioeconomic equality, you're still going to have a different sort of division of reward in some way or another, even if the formal systems ensure that people, uh, that everyone is living with a certain minimal level of uh, quality of life. So mm. in the deep future where we ensure societally that there is greater equality than there is now, there's, it's, people are still going to be naturally attracted to a great conversationalist. They're still going to uh, want to spend time with someone they find physically attractive. Uh, and they're still going to want uh, the person with uh, the best uh, knowledge of uh, telecommunications to uh, run the telecommunication systems. Um, so I think that, there's this, there's a fear that uh, a really radically left future means just no, no differences at all, and that everyone receives exactly the same reward. We could never achieve that, such a, such a reality, no matter how heavy handed we tried to be. And I also think that this is a response to a certain uh, uh, fear that, well, if we have dramatically greater equality, then there will be less uh, uh, reward for excellence, and therefore there will be uh, less uh, motivation for people to be excellent in various fields. But in fact, I think that um, look, uh, some people are going to naturally emerge at better as better at certain things than other people are, and they're going to have more opportunity to do those things than the people who aren't as good as it th- than they are, because we're not stupid as a species and we're not going to sign ourselves up to a contract that leaves us with surgeons who can't pre- perform surgery. And there will be rewards that'll be associated with that, even if they're not as strictly uh, economic or if they're, they don't result in as big disparities economically as we have today. I also think that frankly, um, 
the internet has, among other things, has enabled us to see how willing people are to devote their intellectual labor to things that they really are interested in and care about, even if there's no pecuniary reward. So the internet is absolutely filled with people doing interesting things, publishing papers, doing research. Uh, I, you know, I, um, I was once on a forum uh, about tree houses and uh, someone had uh, taken pictures of a tree and talked about what they wanted. And a few days later, an architect had provided CAD diagrams of a, uh, uh, a tree house that would work in that scenario for completely for free, but because like, that was his passion. And that's, you know, the internet is filled with people pursuing intellectual passion. I just, it's, I, I, I can't Im envision a human future in which there is not sufficient rewards for excellence for people to want to pursue excellence. Uh, or where we won't have this sort of fundamental drive of intellectual uh, achievement. In the meantime, it does seem to me that we are kind of, um, we're always on the back foot when it comes to trying to imagine what things will be societally valuable. Um, so we think we're, you know, we think it's, a, a, we thought 10 years ago when the people were going through school and university that it would be a great idea to become for example, if your child to become an accountant, that's a well-paid job. And it's a job that will always be needed because of business will always need accountants, etc. And now, you know, I think accountancy is about to be automated, um, uh, and that will that that job is about to become redundant. Heart surgery, which was an incredibly um, prestigious job, and that's probably going to go to AI pretty soon. Um, and so we're 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 not very good at predicting um, what the kind of economically advantageous things will will be. Um, but I was quite surprised, nevertheless, to to read in your book that um, that there was a that there is a very um, large wage gap between knowledge workers with college degrees and people who haven't attended college. And um, I. I, I feel I find that quite counterintuitive and surprising because at least from my perspective, um, nurses, teachers, and academics are all frequently out-earned by plumbers, electricians, and other kind of skilled manual laborers. Um, and especially in academe and journalism, many people, probably most people who are involved in those fields in some way are either really, really struggling on absolutely miserly stipends or very, very low incomes, or they are basically not reliant on those careers for their income. They're being supported by family or spouses. And several people, friends of mine who are writers, editors, um, translators, um, who do that kind of work, for example, did so badly in the pandemic that they've had to move back in with their parents. And these are people in their forties and fifties because they're not no longer earning enough to, to make their rent. Um, so it does seem as though perhaps there is going to be a shift in that kind of, um, in the waiting of that. So um, I have done a great deal of research into the, the trades. Let's start with the, talking about the trades. So um, the, the idea that the trades are a safe haven into which we can push people. I mean, look, one of the fundamental arguments of my book is that we're sending too many people to college and we shouldn't. 
So I'm happy to have, you know, uh, places to put people that are not college. The issue with the trades is that the, 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 the big picture is simply that, um, we can never speak intelligently about the trades because they're just so diverse in their outcomes and they cover such a wide variety of things. And so they're very often in sort of endorsed in, in broad terms. It's, it's very common in American politics for, um, a politician to say, well, we've got to send people back to the trades. Um, but the question is, is are we talking about when we talk about, you know, the trades, we might be talking about, um, a unionized Mason in New York City, who was someone who makes, uh, certainly makes, um, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Or we might be talking about a day laboring, uh, uh, non-unionized plumber in, uh, Phoenix, Arizona, who, uh, or plumbing assistant really, um, who makes much, much less. Um, uh, there are trade occupations that have really great numbers. Um, but, uh, year after year, if you look at the list of the occupations, like the 10 occupations with the highest unemployment, um, rates, um, it's always dominated by the trades. And so there's just a great deal of variance. It's also hard to predict. Um, this is uh, uh, several years old now. I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but as of a few years back, um, one of the uh, uh, jobs, the uh, individual jobs with the highest unemployment figures in the country was a photovoltaic engineer. So someone who builds uh, solar uh, panels uh, in the United States, which sounds to me like a great job to get into based on my sort of anecdotal read, but it turns out that it's not. Um, unfortunately, the way that a lot of the trades function is that um, the way that you sort of secure good wages for the people in it is through artificial scarcity. So here in New York, this is particularly true, but it's true in many big cities, which is that you have craft unions who work on seniority to distribute opportunities and jobs. And there's a lot of nepotism and a lot of patronage. Uh, there's a lot of corruption. And, you know, they the reason that unionized New York Mason makes so much is in part because of artificial scarcity, because um, uh, the unions uh, and various other factors are preventing other Masons from entering the field. So it's just it's obviously if you're inheriting your dad's HVAC business um, and you can have a great life as a small business owner. Um, and an independent contractor and make a, a good wage. Um, but there's many, many people who are classified as being in the trades who are essentially day laborers in one capacity or the other. Mm. I, I, I think on the other side of that, you know, you mentioned sort of people who have bachelor's degrees and you talked about academia, knowledge workers, the media, uh, publishing, things like that. I think it's very um, tempting to think of those professions when we think about uh, educated labor, but it's important to say that those are in fact a very small portion of the overall picture of people who have college degrees. The sort of default, the big ocean of people who have college degrees and get jobs that require those college degrees um, is not people who are aspiring academics or people working in publishing, etc. Um, it is people who have what are often called email jobs. They maybe that you know they work in. I mean, these are you know low to mid level 
uh, administrative jobs for companies that have some purpose that they don't directly participate in, right? So these are people who work for the car insurance companies. These are people who work uh, in human resources for mid-level tech firms. These are people who, um, you know, work uh, buying advertising time uh, for uh, uh, manufacturers who make, you know, like... Uh, uh, gardening equipment or whatever, right? It's, it's people who are in white collar occupations uh, that uh, require a college degree. The employers require a college degree. Uh, I think it can be very strongly argued that these jobs don't actually need someone to have a degree, but the, these employers have created a perhaps artificial requirement to have them. So like that's the big, big picture of people with college degrees. It's really not academics or people who are working in knowledge industries. It's people whose college degrees were their entry into um, managerial, bureaucratic, uh, low to mid-level white collar work where they have some company uh, and their function is generally sort of at orthogonal at best to the actual purpose of the company, but they work in some administrative uh, function like HR or in moving various pieces of paper around a desk. So that's, that's the kind of people that we're talking about. And they tend to enjoy, you know, above median incomes in this country. I've got a couple, a couple more questions. Uh, one of which is, I guess, a couple more points of um, tension in the book. Okay. Um, and um, one of them is more personal and the other isn't. I'll start with a more personal one, which is, that you talk a lot about the kind of uselessness of elite institutions. I want to just defend elite institutions a little bit from my personal perspective. I think it's um, elite universities are a bit different in the UK than they are in the US um, because we, we don't have legacy admissions. We don't have sports scholarships or anything like that. We don't have to do extracurricular activities. Um, or write personal statements um, for university entrance. It's entirely based on grades, school grades, and sometimes entrance exams. Um, I believe that it's still the case that all universities cost the same amount. Um, they've become quite expensive. They're paid for by student loans. Um, but uh, um, certainly the time I went to university, they were all free. Um, because our universities and certainly our elite universities are public universities. We have very few private universities and they're not, they don't have a good repu academic reputation. So there is a bit of a difference in, in the kind of system there. But I went to Cambridge and I think that the major benefit, um, was the, the other people whom I was around when I was at Cambridge, that was the most valuable thing the university provided. And that includes um, the kinds of professors that I was around because the place is also, of course, attractive to academics for reasons of prestige and also for reasons of the history and aesthetics, beauty, etc. of the place. Again, salaries are, are are national in the UK, so it's you're not paid more to be a professor there. Um, but people are people find it more appealing, and therefore there's more competition for those jobs. So um, 
I, but I mean, I think that the point of being, the sort of benefit of being around a group of elite intellectuals is not, is not simply status and connections, but it's about if you are among people who are, or at least you feel are your intellectual peers, then it's easier for your ideas to be effectively challenged and stress tested. Um, I went through school extremely bored and actually bunked off many classes and got constantly into trouble into trouble for um playing through and, and skipping classes and things because I was I was not ch- at all challenged um and I nevertheless got extremely high grades and I didn't come from a privileged background so I'm sure a lot of this is heredity um and naturally inherited academic talent and uh, you know when i was um among the other kids at school most of whom went to university but they didn't go to top universities um i there was there was no one who could really challenge me and so i had all kinds of ideas in my head as autodidacts often do that seemed really brilliant and incontrovertible to me that i didn't realize how stupid they were because nobody uh uh, no one around me, at least among the other students, was able to say, hey, wait a minute, this is stupid because of X and Y. And I think that that is one of the big major benefits of education, that when you're just researching things for yourself and reading things for yourself, it's very difficult to, um, it's very difficult to effectively challenge your own ideas and thinking. And so there is a value, I think, in, in, um, in kind of an intellectually assortative system. Does that make well, sense? Well, listen, it, it doesn't make sense to me. I mean, look, I, it, it's, I think it's essential to say that um, I literally grew up on a college campus um, mm. and elite small liberal arts college, uh, middle, uh, uh, Westland university in Middletown, Connecticut. Um, I have completed, oh gosh, uh, 22 or 23, 24 years of, of schooling in my life. Um, formal schooling in my life. Uh, I have spent majority of my life on college campuses. Um, as you can imagine, I have both a mixture of um, great cynicism about them as institutions uh, and also a great deal of affection for them. Um, I think that there are a number of wonderful functions that American universities still fulfill. I think that there's tons of great basic research that are coming out of American colleges and universities. I think that there's a lot of students, perhaps not a majority of students, uh, because uh, I think a majority of students go to college because they feel like they have to. But I think there's still a lot of students who go to be genuinely intellectually challenged and find themselves intellectually challenged and find themselves participating in growth. I think the um, the function of rubbing their minds against other minds that you just described is, in fact, uh, present in, uh, in, in the majority of, of colleges and universities. Um, and there's just a lot of brilliant people who uh, have the opportunity to devote their minds to their particular slices of intellectual uh, interest who wouldn't have the opportunity to do that pro- uh, professionally were it not for the college university system. The problem is that I just think that um, 
all of these functions now exist in spite of rather than because of the institutions themselves and the incentives that they serve. I mean, I think that it's important to look at the American university system as being, I mean, there's many tracks, but we can identify sort of two major tracks, which is you have the large majority of colleges, which are, um, uh, which do not have uh, any particularly large endowment to speak of and are thus deeply dependent upon tuition dollars to remain basically fiscally solvent from one year to the next. And uh, if, I don't know if your, your listeners are aware of this, but um, a, there is a uh, enrollment crisis in American higher education right now. Uh, the enrollment has cratered and it is uh, risking killing a bunch of colleges because these schools simply don't have the financial wherewithal uh, to be able to keep the lights on financially uh, uh, to pay their staff if it's not for um, the collection of tuition checks. And so you have uh, these institutions that are essentially in the business of marketing uh, a four-year vacation uh, with a light peppering of academic excellence worked into that market. Um, the uh, the rise of uh, these amenities on college campuses, uh, 24-hour sushi bars. Uh, when I was at Purdue, they opened a $90 million, $90 million uh, gym, uh, a fitness center for students. There are, is just an immense number of amenities that schools offer because uh, that's what they're actually offering to students is, you know, they're selling college on the, the, uh, vision of four years of partying, um, and relaxing and having fun and then collecting a degree and then going off and getting your job. And it, there's a really nasty chicken and the egg problem with rising tuition and these amenities because schools need to raise tuition to pay for the amenities, but they need the amenities to justify the tuition and the student loan that these kids are going to take on. And then the other track you have is sort of the elite universities that have massive endowments and which are not fundamentally operating um, uh, under a need uh, for tuition. Um, no Ivy League university has any actual financial need to charge tuition at all. All the Ivy League universities, as well as Stanford and the University of Chicago and et cetera, et cetera, um, could easily afford to charge zero dollars in tuition to anyone and simply live off of the interest of their endowments. I think Harvard's endowment is north of $40 billion right now, for example, which is greater than the GDP of many countries. Um, but what this creates um, is, um, number one, a sort of madcap uh, academic uh, competition where the drive to actually identify and inculcate academic talent has been completely superseded by the desire to win in this race so that the actual object of you know, taking intellectually curious young people and bringing out the best in them and, and molding their minds has been just completely lost to the pure competitive urge that these schools have. Um, uh, and also to sort of, sort of create the best, uh, sort of most attractive, uh, a student body in ways that are not academic. So this is not a big secret, but a school like Harvard is not particularly uh, looking to choose only the best, you know, 1800, how, something that's something like that, their incoming freshman classes, not the best 1800 applica applicants in terms of raw academic ability, but uh, in terms of creating a, a population that's attractive to other students, right? So 
Uh, I mean, one of the things that they're that these schools are doing are really aggressively instituting a de facto affirmative action for male students because female students are outperforming male in, in the American high school to such a great degree. And so the, the, the actual academic function is sort of been lost in this madcap uh, race to be the most academically excellent, as much of a contradiction as that might sound. It's also the case that you don't get a $40 billion endowment by by charging tuition, by, by cashing tuition checks. That's not how it, that happens. It happens because um, you get parents and alumni who donate. And the way you get parents and alumni who donate is you identify the parents who, uh, who the, the families that are already in a position to donate. In other words, um, Harvard is not cashing a lot of, is not, uh, you know, sort of putting down a lot of lotto tickets on people who could become rich in the future. They're identifying the families that, that have the means to donate. Uh, now the parents will donate later and the alumni will be able to donate later. And so, um, there is, I mean, even, people talk about the legacy system and the legacy system is bad, but totally independent of the legacy system is just the preference for rich, uh, for rich applicants. And mm. so, um, as you can guess, like that is a corrupting influence that sort of distorts the incentives of these institutions terribly. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, the sort of the position on the U.S. News and World Reports rankings are, vital to them only in the sense in which uh the higher the ranking the more likely the, the the alumni is to is to donate so i just think that these are institutions that are operating on fundamentally bad models that have almost nothing to do with the academic imperative um i do think a lot of great work happens on college campuses and they're they're places where i'm the most comfortable in life but uh the problems are intense I also want to, I don't want to kind of get into the weeds on this too much, um, but I do want to um, kind of t uh, just mention the thorny topic of race. Um, and I guess, first of all, let me say that I'm not, I'm not here to debate whether there are average differences in IQ by race. Um, I'm a skeptic. I'm actually a skeptic about that. I'm, uh, I'm a pretty thoroughgoing skeptic about the, um, the categ racial categories in general, actually, not just when it comes to intelligence. Um, uh, but that's a whole other topic and something that I've written about and talked about a lot elsewhere. So it's not that I, I, um, am a kind of race realist in that sense. However, where I notice a, a contradiction for me, uh, uh, for me, the idea that different racial groups have different average IQs and that's hereditary rather than the result of socioeconomic factors um, is a hypothesis. And I think it's probably wrong. And you, I think, very astutely give the example of the way in which uh, women's performance relative to men's performance in academe has shifted over the uh, centuries, suggesting that a lot of assumptions about women's um, uh, lack of academic talent being hereditary has um, being genetic has been has been completely disproven, and that may well be the case with um, performance differences between different racial groups. And I I find the whole kind of um, uh, uh, the subject fraught with scientific difficulties, but still I find mm -hmm. it a hypothesis rather than something that 
gives me any moral outrage. I just think, good, it's great people are studying this because I think it's important to study uh, genetics and it's important to study intelligence. Um, and I think it's unlikely to be true. And I also kind of hope it's not true, um, but nevertheless could be true because I have been wrong about things in the past. And also the universe isn't sort of doesn't arrange itself to suit what I would like to be true or believe to be true. So I just, um, uh, but your kind of tone is very, very motive when you're talking about it in the book. And I think that there's, there's for me a contradiction there between what you say about individual differences in intelligence, where you rightly say some people, some individuals are smarter than others. And that doesn't mean that the people who aren't as intelligent are any less worthwhile or have any less moral worth than the smarter people. Um, and therefore, we could say the same thing about groups. We could discover, say, women aren't as intelligent as men. That doesn't mean women are kind of morally worthless. Or there's been some speculation as to whether um, gay men are, have a higher IQ than straight men, for example. Um, mm -hmm. If we were to discover that, that would, I would find that a completely morally an interesting and counterintuitive um, or unintuitive, but completely morally neutral just piece of information. These are things that are either true facts about the world or not. And I'm surprised that you put so much moral valence on it, on them, on that, that particular hypothesis that race and IQ are linked, given how strongly you argue elsewhere in the book that people's moral worth is not dependent on their IQ. So, I mean, I, I would say that uh, first, like, I, I do think that it's an empirical question. Right. It, it's an askable question. Like you, I am personally extremely skeptical of uh, of the idea that differences in academic performance between races uh, are genetic in, in origin. But I don't think that it's like an unaskable question. What I do think is that uh, the question has to be located in a historical and social uh, sociological context and not deracinated from the history of racism and slavery, et cetera. Uh, in the world. In other words, um, there is a tendency among people who like to play in with the, it's sort of like to swim in these waters to sort of say, oh, I'm just ask, asking a sort of uh, uh, a uh, completely neutral and uh, totally scientific and objective and not at all uh, political, etc. cetera, um, <clears throat> question when I talk about uh, the role of race and intelligence. But you, we in fact cannot have that right there, there there is no such thing as a question about uh the intelligence of black people the genetic origins of intelligence uh among groups etc that does not exist in a uh historical context in which uh there was an assumption of the the total inferiority of people of color of black people in, in particular uh <clears throat> that inevitably color is what we're talking about. Um, there, there has to be a particular sensitivity to these questions and absent, you know, a really compelling evidence. Otherwise, I think it has to be argued forcefully in the negative because um, we need to place the story in the context of everything that's come before, which is a, a history of horrors. Um, 
we don't have great data on this, but um, I will. I would just throw out there as in, towards this as being an empirical question. Were it true that white DNA was a special sauce that made white people smarter than black, then we would expect African-Americans to be systematically better performers academically than Africans who live in Africa. Because uh, African-Americans, due to the history of slave rape, um, are a population with a great deal of recent European DNA. Some of the estimates can be as high as 30% of the recent uh, uh, genetic ancestry of the average black person um, is white. So we know that American black people, African Americans, have a lot of uh, recent European heritage. Uh, the uh, average African does not have hardly any recent uh uh American, uh, recent, excuse me, European heritage at all. And so we're white DNA, European DNA, this sort of um, genetic booster for intelligence and academic ability, you would expect that uh, black people would be, that American black people would be systematically outperforming African people who live in Africa. Uh, and uh, there's no evidence that that's true. And it, with the limited data that I've seen suggests that, in fact, the opposite is true and that <clears throat> to the degree to we, which we can make good comparisons, uh, Africans in Africa are outperforming uh, <clears throat> African-Americans. Uh, again, for you know the obvious uh, explanation that there is very complicated sociological and socioeconomic factors going on at play here that uh, uh, are influencing things. I would maybe leave us with a sort of an analogy that I've made before for just talking about these topics in general, which is, you know, imagine that you have a tribe that lives in the Amazon and in Brazil, and it's a pre-modern tribe, a hunter-gatherer tribe of the kind that still exists. Um, and so they have a uh, body mass index, right, a, a level of, uh, of body fat percentage. Um, and obesity rates that are consistent with hunter-gatherer tribes, which is on an average very low. Um, however, even within that population where the, the BMI and the obesity uh, rates are quite low, there is variation between individuals, and that variation is uh, partially genetic, partially heritable, right? Um, let's say that the tribe splits in half. One half of the tribe says, we don't want this lifestyle anymore. We're going to Sao Paulo in Brazil and we're going to live in a modern environment. So they move to the modern environment and they have a modern diet, high calorie, high sugar, et cetera. They're sedentary compared to their previous lifestyle. Very quickly, we would see that the BMI and obesity rates of those two groups, the half of the tribe that stayed behind in a hunter-gatherer lifestyle and the half that went to modern uh, nutritional conditions, you would see a divergence in their average uh, BMIs, in their in their obesity rates, uh, for example. Um, so there would be a difference between the groups that is entirely uh, environmental. However, within either one of those groups, within either part of those groups, there would be variation between individuals that is entirely, or that is, excuse me, uh, uh, heavily genetic in component. Right. There would be a fatter people among the hunter gatherers. There would be thinner people among those who went to the modern environment. And so 
you know, that is a way to think about when we think about uh, genetics and intelligence, that, you know, it's not difficult to imagine scenarios where you have group differences that are environmental in origin, while individual differences are genetic or partially genetic. That's a very interesting analogy. Thank you. Um, I think the thing that possibly the, uh, the thing that I most, one of the things I most appreciated um, about the book, sorry, that was a very convoluted sentence. One of the things I most appreciated about your book is um, that I have long been frustrated by the persistence of, among some sectors, the left, and especially in education, um, of a belief in the kind of infinite malleability of individuals, um, the idea that social conditioning can account for almost all differences, and that we can solve everything by just changing policy. Um, and uh, I find that a kind of bizarre flat eartherism on the left. And also, as, as you rightly point out, not compassionate, because it suggests that if you're not, if you're failing, it's your fault. You're not trying hard enough. And that's somehow, somehow within your power to try harder, do better and be smarter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that it is an interesting artifact of the contemporary left that there is both an ethos of sort of radical self-acceptance, right? Which like that we should, um, accept every element of ourselves, even the parts that we don't wouldn't ordinarily like and that are not palatable to others. Um, at the same time as there is a total blank slateism about our particular attributes as human beings, um, those seem rather incongruous to me. It seems to me that if you acknowledge that uh, <clears throat> there are things that are beyond our control, uh, then that would inspire the kind of self-acceptance that people are looking for. But you have to be willing to own up to the fact that we're not all equal, that in fact, um, we all have a vast range of different abilities and attributes, and we all have something that we can contribute, but that uh, we are not all equally good at the same things. Thank you. Freddie, is there anything that I haven't asked you that I hope you hoped I would ask? or anything that you've been wanting to say that I haven't given you the opportunity to say? No, I think that that was a great conversation. Um, I think that uh, I would say that um, the one thing that I would add is that um, this, the book has been interpreted by some as saying that uh, we don't need to, for example, provide resources uh, for schools because schooling doesn't matter. Um, the question is not do schools matter? The question is how schools matter, that uh, there is a great deal of value in making schools stimulating places where different students can discover the things that they like doing and are good at. And that uh, these are for many st uh, students, unfortunately, in our society, these are the only clean, warm, safe places where they'll be fed in their average day. And so we, we should provision them in, under those uh those uh, reasons and not because we're trying to chase this ever elusive dragon of uh, higher and higher test scores. Thank you very much, Freddie. Um, it's been a, it's been a real pleasure. I will put the details for your book and your subsect, which I have subscribed and everything else into the show notes. And um, I highly recommend, um, well, I think most of my listeners are familiar with your work already. Um, gather, uh, to gather what I, that's what I gather from the kind of comments I'm getting on social media um, and are very excited to 
listen to you. So thank you so much. All right. Thank you. I appreciate your time. You have been listening to Two for Tea, a podcast hosted by me, Iona Italia, and produced in association with Ario Magazine, with the assistance of sound engineer Justin Ward. Show notes are provided by Daniel Sharp. If you enjoyed this episode, share it widely, leave a review on your favorite podcast app, and please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash two for tea. Have a wonderful week.